Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Good morning and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast uh, in which we discuss the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox. Our guest that we have for this morning is Nick Reynosa. Nick Reynosa has been involved in the pro-life movement for the last nine years. He is the former Northern California and Nevada Regional Coordinator for Students for Life of America and is a current board member of Pro-Life San Francisco. His writings have appeared in National Review and LifeNews.com, and he has been quoted by the New York Times and NPR. In his most recent venture, Nick is a founding member of the newly formed Society for Ethical Research. Nick identifies as a secular pro-lifer. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Quinn. Yeah, glad to have you here. I've brought Nick on to the program today so that we could, we could talk about the organization that he had a hand in, in founding, the Society for Ethical Research. So I'll, I'll go ahead and start by asking you a question, Nick, that I, I ask all of our guests who come on just to kind of get to know you a little bit. Uh, why are you pro-life? What was kind of your journey to becoming pro-life? Well, I, I always had a desire to help people, and, you know, everything in life has an opportunity cost, so I knew I couldn't help in every cause, so I wanted to find the cause that, in my mind, did the most good, thinking about, like, the underlying arguments of all these different causes, and um, the philosopher Sam Harris had mentioned one time that if the underlying assumptions of the pro-life movement are true then abortion is the greatest holocaust in the world. I mean, of course, Mr. Harris is pro-choice, but his argument was, you know, if those assumptions are true. And so I started thinking about it, and when I discovered more intellectually honest pro-choicers such as Peter Singer or Naomi Wolf, um, there's a very powerful piece by Naomi Wolf called Our Bodies, Our Souls, which I think is the most intellectually honest thing ever written about abortion. And it played a big part uh, in my formation in becoming pro-life, uh, there's, I, I just want to read a passage from that. It says, uh, um, feminism at its best is based on what is simply true. Well, pro-lifers have not been above dishonesty. Many of the photographs are of actual DNCs. Those footprints are footprints of 10-week-old fetuses. 
the slogan abortion stops the beating heart is incontrovertibly true and he goes and she goes well violent fetal death work uh, may work magnificently for pro-lifers as a political polemic the pictures are not political in themselves they are biological facts we know this and she says how can we charge that these are repulsive images if the images are real to insist the truth is in poor taste is the very definition of hypocrisy and so i think that once i realized that the intellectually honest pro-choice physician did acknowledge the violence of it and then i thought about the scale as Sam Harris was talking about. I put those two together, and I realized that I becoming a pro-life activist was what I needed to do. So it was actually pro-choice people that were instrumental in your becoming a pro-life advocate. Definitely, I think that uh, from the pro-life side, I think Dr. Bernard Nathanson, um, <laughs> the Silent Scream, also had a deep impact on me. But I think that um, a, a lot of times the pro-life pro-choice debate gets broken down into sort of like uh, straw men, like the handmaid's tale costumes and stuff like that. But when you actually deal with the actual argument where we're saying this is unjustified violence and the intellectually honest pro-choicers are saying it's justified violence, I think you get more to the heart of the argument. And, and that had a deep impact on me. Well, great. So you're, you are a founding member of an organization called Society for Ethical Research. Could you tell us a bit about your organization? Yes, so the Society for Ethical Research is a, a nonviolent direct action pro-life group, and we are building on the brave work of David Delight. And you know, our saying here is we are determined to make sure that David's work was not done in vain. And we are using the information that David has gathered to put pressure on UCSF about their fetal harvesting program. We're pressuring their sources of funding, whether it be through the UC Board of Regents or the National Institutes of Health, and we're conducting um, pretty much daily activism where we're going there, we're, we're you know semi-occupying the places, we're going in and we're, we're, we're trying not to, we're trying to create healthy tension in the tradition of direct action with without you know necessarily getting arrested, but we want to cause as much tension and bring as much public attention as possible and then get responses and accountability from UCSF. And then we're mixing that in with our media outreach, our outreach to churches, and and uh, we're trying to raise public awareness about this issue. Now, is David Delighton aware of your organization? He's uh, partnered with Pro-Life San Francisco and Teresa Kokovinak, the leader of Pro-Life San Francisco. And uh, he is... Uh, Jeff White, who's also one of our founders, he's been in talks with him, and uh, he's also in talks with Teresa. But we do not work for David Delayden or with David Delayden. We are building on the work of David Delayden. Our goal is to see David caught up in these lawsuits, in these um, court proceedings, and that has distracted him from his work. And it started with David Delayden, and now there's 10 David Delaydens and Tomorrow we hope there'll be a hundred David Delines, and they can't stop us all. And that's basically the goal: is to take that movement and grow it, and raise public awareness and see this through. So the Society for Ethical Research and and others who are kind of stepping up to help fill this void are able to do David's work while David is uh, involved in all of these lawsuits that are being brought against him. 
Well, there's one major distinction, I would say, and that is David was doing undercover investigative journalism. And while we do do citizen journalism, I mean, we film all of our activism and we do question in some on films in some ways like the way a citizen journalist would do. We, we're not doing any undercover journalism and we're not um, – we're, we're putting direct action pressure regarding the funding. It's not so much like we're trying to necessarily gather um, a tremendous amount more information, although we are, we, we are gathering information, but that's not the main goal. The goal is to use the information we already have to create political pressure and see a policy change. Okay. So how does the Society for Ethical Research fit into the overall pro-life movement? So in my nine – I mean part of the reason we're all pro-life is we see the – dehumanization of the unborn and in my nine plus years of pro-life work i have never encountered the level of dehumanization that we've seen through ucsf and the fetal harvesting program uh to put it in perspective uh you know a couple years ago the, the new york and illinois and virginia were coming out with these very you know extreme pro-choice bills and the, the types of procedures that are used in fetal organ harvesting are even more extreme than the, you know, they call them the heart attack abortions in New York, like the in vivo abortion procedures, which we'll get into a little later. But these are even more extreme and more inhumane than even the most extreme pro-choice state. And um, so if we're talking about the evil of abortion, this certainly is in the, a special tier of that. Um, and also just the influence of UCSF. UCSF is a, a central node um, in the abortion rights movement. It's in its activism and its training. It's trained over 2,700 OBGYNs. It has over 100 abortion training programs uh, affiliated with it throughout North America. It is also um, the largest site of the um, more barbaric, the non-digoxin abortions in the country. And we have that as a direct quote from the, the Center for Medical Progress videos. And, you know, I think about if we draw an analogy to the civil rights movement, you know, Martin Luther King did his best work in the toughest places in the deep South. And as we have a 50 state strategy in the pro-life movement, we need to not neglect our deep blue states where we seem sometimes we can be the most discouraged or can seem the most hopeless. And I think it's so important that we have these pro-life voices in California and San Francisco, the most extreme places. And um, that's where this fight against UCSF plays into that, I think. Okay, so what is fetal organ harvesting, and how is UCSF involved with it? So um, let's just you know, take off our pro-life hat here for a second and just think about from a research perspective, what are sort of the parameters in order to do fetal tissue research. So these tissues are graded uh, similar to the way that, you know, a meat would be graded at a supermarket. And so there are certain standards um, in order to conduct research. So these, uh, in order for a tissue or organ to be worked on, it has to be uh, not be eviscerated, not be poisoned, it has to be you know, relatively pristine and unharmed. And so when they, there's a supply chain for this necessity to conduct certain procedures to ensure the quality of the tissue. So there's two ways to go about that. Um, number one, 
you can do a, a D&E abortion and you would keep the trunk or the abdomen intact and you would dismember the fetus, removing the trunk intact and then dissect the desired organs like the thymus, the liver, the heart out of the abdomen. And there's also the induction method, which where also a non-digoxin method, which you use mistoprostol and it induces uh, labor, again, not using digoxin. And, you know, we know from the Society of Planning that these procedures are very risky. And according to their own research, zero to 50% of the time, we have live births in these situations. And that also presents ethical problems because of the Born Alive Infant Act and those types of protections. And so uh, once these organs are taken through these non-digoxin abortions, they can then be, uh, for one example, implanted into mice to humanize the mice's immune system. And then uh, theoretically, they can do um, experiments on immune responses for, you know, diseases like HIV and so forth. I'm somewhat familiar with uh, David Delighton's work and the undercover investigations he did of Planned Parenthoods. In fact, I live here in the Central Valley, and the Planned Parenthood in Fresno was one of the ones that David investigated. But I actually had no idea that there was a university that was also engaging in the practice as well. Yes. Um, right now, currently, uh, UCSF has uh, nine NIH um, grants that are somewhat related, fetal research, and, and it's in the uh, multi-millions of dollars, uh, these grants. Um, we have seen, uh, thanks to the great work of David, some progress on that. Um, one of the contracts was recently ended by the Trump administration. I actually have a quote here from the administration, which is very hopeful because I I don't want our, our listeners to be discouraged here, but here's an actual um, uh, quote. It says here, the department was not sufficiently assured that the contract included the appropriate protections applicable to fetal tissue research and met all of their procurement requirements. It says promoting the dignity of life is one of the very top priorities of the President Trump's administration. And NIH announced $20 million funding opportunity to develop, to research, to develop, and to demonstrate, validate, and ex experimental models that do not rely on human field tissue model from elective abortions. HHS is committed to providing additional funding to support the development and validation of alternative models. And uh, so I will say, though, that that is not the whole story because there are still nine grants going on through NIH to UCSF. Um, but that is a start, and we're going to keep pressuring the Trump administration to continue uh, when these con other contracts expire to not renew them. And uh, and so, but it's only through the work of David Delighton that even such a statement was released. So we, we, have, to, we have to acknowledge that and uh, give David all the credit there. Are there any other colleges or organizations engaging in fetal organ harvesting than the ones already mentioned that you're aware of? Uh, yes, another um, um Planned Parenthood in, in New York uh, does some of these procedures. Uh, UCLA, uh, another really strong late-term abortion center is the University of New Mexico. Um, there are several, and um, we'll, we will also be through. We have 
um, legislation uh, that has been proposed at the federal level, um, one concerning um, fetal harvesting in general, and one more specifically concerned with federal funding. But these are great um, pieces of legislation because it allows us to, because we're seeking to defund and abolish these experiments. And these um, pieces of legislation are very clear in the sense that they don't allow for any loopholes. Um, the current statutes have um, have stipulations where you know you can say, well, you're donating it, or it's just a shipping fee, or so. If you're a lawyer, you can kind of wiggle your way out through these terms. But if you just um, abolish the research, public and private, and you defund it completely, um, that makes it very clear there's no there's no wiggle room out of that. So what's the direct action strategy that SER utilizes? So our tradition is very much in the tradition of you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. Um, I have a great quote here from Letters from Birmingham Jail. Um, one second here, let me pull it. Nonviolent sure. direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which is constantly refused to negotiate is forced to, is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to dramatize the issue so it can no longer be ignored. And I think that's a perfect quote when talking about UCSF because um, what we've encountered in the in the nascent stages of this organization is a lot of stonewalling, a lot of bureaucracy. Um, Pro Life San Francisco has been going consistently to UC Board of Regents meetings and really received no answers. Um, uh, just a lot of rubber stamping at that level. And um, also, to uh, there, there, there seems to be a, a compliant media, a media that mm. is very biased in their in their quote unquote fact checking, you know. Um, and so, what we do is by coming in and creating uh, this tension, that the general public sees it. it it's, it's an ongoing process. And, you know, eventually there will be a public statement of, of denial or more transparency. And eventually, you know, with our ongoing public policy stuff, then we can have a policy discussion and, and get, that fun, get that policy change and that funding pulled. Is uh, SER affiliated with Pro-Life San Francisco or is it a, a different organization? I mean, we definitely partner with Teresa. Um, Teresa is not a leader of Sarah now, but she is a daily partner. Um, she's, you know, the resident expert of direct action here in in San Francisco, and so we use that skill set um, a lot. And uh, but we have an internal leadership here that we have, you know, our own department um, and our and our own specific tasks that we have. And, and Teresa is not a part of that um, that organization. But um, we're so grateful for the work that she's done in sort of consolidating David's work and, 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 and kind of being the forerunner to what we're doing. And her, her partner, Robert Bird, has just been amazing and been extremely educational for me to talk to Robert. And you know, what, everything I know about this, I've learned from Robert. And so we're very grateful for Pro-Life San Francisco and how they've, we're just building on their great work. Yeah, uh, I, I do know Teresa, but I've never met Robert Bird. Teresa is definitely one of the hardest working pro-life people that I know. 
this might be a little bit related to the first question I asked, but I was just kind of curious because I, I had already asked uh, what kind of led you to become pro-life, but what uh, what was it that that kind of led you to want to oppose uh, specifically the fetal organ harvesting that goes on at, at UCSF as kind of a I don't I don't know I, I don't want to say like a side project, but it's kind of like a something to focus on a little more specifically than just abortion in general to to really focus on this specific uh, uh, topic here. Well, I think it was um, a matter of, for myself personally, it was a matter of circumstances and opportunity. Most of the pro-life work I've okay. done has basically fallen into like two categories, like general pro-life activism and like sidewalk counseling type of thing. Um, but and, and I think overall, those we, we need to have like an abolitionist, you know, 50 state, you know, human life amendment. Like we need to have very ambitious goals, and I'm 100% on board with that. Um, but for for me in the circumstances, I mean, I've lived in the Bay Area the last three years, and I, I've, you know, been aware of David. I've gone to David's trials. I've been aware of Teresa's work. I've helped her a little bit, and with the coronavirus. Um, starting, I was furloughed from one of my jobs, and uh, Jeff White uh, from Survivors of the Abortion Holocaust was starting up uh, a Society for Ethical Research. And the fact that it's a local issue, the fact that due to corona, I had the time to do it. And also, like I said, in my nine and a half years, I've never seen the level of uh, extreme abortion policy that I've seen with UCSF, um, it, it makes it, it makes even um, you know states like Virginia, New York, Illinois seem tame in comparison. Um, and it's something that I think even we can go off the polls. You know, something like 79 to 80 uh, percent of the uh, general public finds late-term abortion. Uh, immoral, and something like 66% of Democrats find late-term abortion immoral, and so this is even more extreme than, say, you know, New York's policy of the the heart attack abortion, because they're deliberately not using digoxin in these procedures. So I think it was kind of a confluence of all those factors, but as I've gotten into it and really kind of acclimated myself to David's work in more detail, I've just become more convinced that David just hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you watch all his videos, you see the abortionists are making his own argument for him. And um, that sort of made me more crystallize my view that this fight is just and important. So what public policy goals does SER support? So we have um, sort of a central goal set, and then we have some peripheral goals. So our central goal would be to build on, you know, what the Trump administration has done with the ending of that first contract and eventually see all nine contracts end. Um, also, the House resolutions I talked about, um, banning fetal research in general, um, and there are two different ones, one concerning private and public, um, getting those, getting co-sponsors for those, getting attention in the media for those, um, eventually going and testifying for those and getting those passed. Those And, and then lastly, our, our last central goal is we have um, the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, 
and we have some legis- and the partial birth abortion ban act and we have some legislation that is already in our favor but the problem is we don't have the enforcement and we need to have um especially considering we have a pro life executive branch we need to have much stricter enforcement and consequences for violation of of either the partial birth abortion ban or the born alive infant protection act and we see states like illinois new york virginia actively seeking to in their own states um curb back the born alive infant protection act so and those are also um you know sort of spots where along with ucsf we can pressure the federal government to say hey you need to keep an eye out on these states because this type of research is going to in some cases lead to violations of those acts and then a peripheral goal we have is uh, was an investigative citizen journalist, and you know he is the result of David's trials. California has passed a law stating that you cannot film um, medical personnel at all, and that's making what we do very difficult because we do a lot of direct action stuff. We're filming it, and we're dealing with doctors, nurses, and stuff like that, and we can't publish those videos and i feel just as american who cares about the first amendment i feel like that is it's really hampering our activism and i believe that law is very unconstitutional so we're also going to work on um these you know removing these special protections from the from the first amendment for like from for, for medical providers they don't have to deal with journalistic questions i feel like that's a, an unconstitutional special treatment that they're receiving yeah, now I do know that these uh, Born Alive Infant Protection Acts have received pushback from from many politicians. I I always kind of figured it was because they were so supportive of abortion that they wanted to uh, make sure that uh, that a woman could still go through with an abortion even if an infant was was born alive and survived an abortion attempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the opposition to these bills also a part of a support for fetal organ harvesting? Are are they kind of related in that respect? I don't think it's the the central reason. I think the first reason you said is, is more accurate. I also think that um, can be a sort of a protection of the organization overall. Um, mm-hmm. If if Planned Parenthood or UCSF or whatever organization was found to be you know consistently violating these things, it would put um, their funding at great risk. And so I think that in trying to either get rid of these protections or just not enforce them and ignore them, then it's more of like an institutional protection, protecting UCSF, protecting Planned Parenthood. Um, The fetal organ harvesting uh, is important to the researchers and important to their funding, but I don't know how important it is to uh, Planned I think it it may be more important to UCSF because UCSF is a research-based institution, whereas Planned Parenthood is a uh, abortion provider, so they're a little different. Um, so if I had to say who cares more about the, the research, it would definitely be UCSF just because they have scientists directly working for them doing that. But also it would be a huge black eye if UCSF was discovered to be constantly violating these born alive protections with the in vivo procedures and so forth. Have you received a lot of pushback from pro-choice organizations or or other kinds of organizations that might have an interest in this kind of research? Um, You know, we're in a very nascent stage. Um, I would say the biggest thing we've experienced now 
is um, a lot of stonewalling, a lot of bureaucracy. Um, UCSF has actually not answered freedom of information requests from pro-life San Francisco. We have encountered, like when we go and we do our direct action, you know, there's always the police there, there's always the security there, but no one's been arrested, no one's been sued yet. Um, as as we continue, you know, those become possibilities. Um, but uh, so far, uh, I don't think that we're we've made that impact where we have had that pushback. But it is totally possible and uh, to be expected. What are some of the ethical issues then with fetal organ harvesting? So I think it's sort of when we think about you know the ethics the ethics of research in general. There's plenty of experiments that scientists would love to do that would answer important questions that may require them to cross a line. For example, there was a movie that came out recently called Three Identical Strangers. And in in the movie, they take these identical triplets and they separate them at birth and they put them in different homes, like rich home, poor home. And then they try to experiment on their whole life the, the differences between nature and nurture. But... In doing so, they you know they lied to the kids, they lied to the parents, they lied to the siblings, and it was deeply unethical. Even though the premise of the experiment is actually very interesting, what's more important, nature or nurture? Um, and so, and if we look at the the history of where ethics and science has gone awry, whether that be you know the Mengele experiments in in Germany or the Tuskegee experiments in America or the history of eugenics, usually ethics uh, or bad ethics begin with the otherization or the dehumanization of a group, whether it be African-Americans, Jews, um, intellectually handicapped people, whatever the case may be. And in this case, we see this with the unborn, and we have a dehumanization, dehumanization of the unborn and then a justification of barbarity towards them in the name of the greater good. And so I think that the... The malpractice happening at UCSF is in a long, sad history of science of dehumanization and exploitation of a outside group, in this case, the unborn. A question that, that occurs to me is someone who might support this kind of research might accuse you of opposing science. They might say that you're opposing science because you're opposing uh, you know, scientific research and a, a technique that saves lives. They, they might take a relativistic mm-hmm. position, say, you know, you believe that fetuses are valuable human beings, but we don't, and the scientists who are experimenting on these fetuses don't. So who are you to say that we shouldn't go forward with this scientific research just because you firmly believe that these are, are human beings? Yeah, How would you kind of respond to someone who, who makes well, that kind of position? I mean... In their own in their own research, they refer to fetuses as human beings because when they take the human organs from the fetuses and they implant them into mice, they call the mice humanized mice. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, part of the reason why fetuses are desirable is that they are human fetuses. They have human tissue, and fetal stem cells are they differentiate themselves. Um, from adult stem cells because they have more variability. They're, they have more plasticity. They can become different things. And from leaving aside the ethics of it, from just a practical standpoint, that gives the scientists more opportunities to work with them. But, again, even they acknowledge the humanity of it, and they also acknowledge the um, 
the living nature of the fetus, the procedure used in fetal harvesting is called in vivo, which means in the living. Um, and they also acknowledge that, you know, um, they use terms like demise, which was a euphemism for death. They acknowledge that death occurs during the, the procurement. Um, and they acknowledge that some are born alive, a certain percentage are born alive. So I think that they are they are acknowledging some of the pro-life premises. Um, but I think it's important to remember that, you know, we take a very principled stand. We're not making a utilitarian argument. We're making a principled argument. We're saying that if you justify ending one fetal life for the greater good, what's to, just, what's to stop you from justifying 50 or 100 or 1,000? And you have to take a principled stand um, to avoid a, a disincentive of more fetal experimentation, but also in general, in fetal, in, in science, we, ethical scientists self-limit their research um, in order to avoid uh, these conflicts of, you know, or, or these bad incentives or um, clearly in their own words, the destruction of human life. So I think those are all reasons why we find it unethical. You identify as a secular pro-lifer. Uh, does that does that mean that you're non-religious, or is, is it just kind of a, a yeah? Public I, I think um, I I uh, I'm definitely non-theistic, and I mm-hmm. uh, I'm agnostic. I think I I'm sympathetic to ideas of deism, but I say I'm agnostic. Yeah. Okay, because yeah, because I've I've had uh, a, a couple of non-religious pro-life people on before. I've had Kelsey Hazard and uh, Teresa both mm-hmm. on before, and I think it's helpful uh, whenever I have a non-religious person on to ask them how it is they ground their uh, their pro-life views. Because uh, you know a lot of uh, pro-life people are religious, and I've heard a lot of people mm-hmm. who you know don't think you can be an atheist or you know, just non-religious, you know, reject the idea of God mm-hmm. and still be pro-life uh, because, you know, they, they would say you don't have, you know, any way to ground human values. So as someone who doesn't believe in God, how do you ground your pro-life convictions? I would take two approaches. Um, so I think one of the most fundamental ideas in philosophy is the idea of the non-aggression principle. And I think um, abortion is violent. I mean, it's undeniable that abortion is violence. Now, you can argue it's justified violence or unjustified violence, but the fact that it's violence is is not arguable. And I feel like in a society, in democracy, the non-aggression principle is so important because it's the closest thing I think we have to a secular objective morality because it allows society to function the best when we can freely consent nonviolently and we, we make those types of decisions. And secondly, I would say, you know, a lot of times, and I'm conservative, I just want to preface this by saying I'm conservative, but a lot of conservatives will say that our rights come from God or our, our rights are natural rights. But I've never disagreed with that because if, for example, let's say tomorrow a law was passed that said, um, all Christians are legally to be persecuted. Well, the only thing stopping that from happening is society saying, no, we're going to protect the rights of Christians. But it's not like God is going to come down from the sky and protect Christians because anyone's rights can be taken away at any time. I mean, African-Americans' rights were taken away, women's rights were taken away, the unborn's rights were taken away. So I think the idea that our rights come from God is rather silly because our rights come from each other. The second we stop protecting each other our rights go away. 
And um, I think, so I ground my theory of rights in a social contract theory. And I think the unborn should be included in that social contract, just as women or minorities or religious minorities or any other group should be. You'd mentioned the non-aggression principle. So before you said that you're conservative, I was actually about to ask if you were a libertarian. I, I would say I, I'm, I a libertarian, I'm a libertarian conservative, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I, I, I do know a few libertarians, and I've met a number of them, and yeah, the non-aggression principle is very big in libertarian legal philosophy. So uh, are there any ethical alternatives to fetal organ harvesting that SER supports? Absolutely. So um, obviously, you know, adult stem cells, although a, a common rhetoric you'll hear when you bring up adult stem cells as well, there's that, I, as I mentioned before, that clear difference between the flexibility of fetal stem cells and sort of the rigidity of adult stem cells. But there's some interesting new research um, coming in. In recent years, the creation of induced uh, pluripotent stem cells has brought about hope to researchers looking for additional options. And these cells have the ability to become any type of cell but are created from adult stem cells, avoiding ethical concerns posed by embryonic stem cell use. And also, there have been other cells taken from uh, one moment here. I got what this mm-hmm. from the placenta, umbilical cord, amniotic fluid, um, disposed surgical tissue, and postmortem tissue that have also had some results. Um, so I, I think you know we want to be clear. We we love the idea of using uh, biology, using science to help with these ailments. I even think the concept of donating one's body to science when you die is a very noble thing. Um, but the donation, you know, the donations from fetal har- uh, to, to create fetal harvesting are very different than that. Number one, the procedure itself is a violent, immoral procedure, but also the consent form from the mothers to donate this fetal tissue can also have issues. Now, I don't want to deny these women of any agency because there, there are very well maybe some of them who are are doing this uh, of free will, but. You know, we've seen from some of the, and I'm not talking about UCSF specifically, but from some fetal tissue consent forms where they will say things like, you know, these fetal tissues are used to cure HIV and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, and that is a very much a gross exaggeration. A better way of saying it would be that they're attempting to cure those diseases with these cells, but they are not haven't actually cured them already. That's, that's just a misnomer. Um, so... Uh, I think that uh, having in truly informed consent and then the donations coming from ethical procedures and that is going to be a foundation for ethical science, not what we're seeing at UCSF. How can people get involved in opposing fetal organ harvesting? Oh, so I thank you for asking that. So there's many ways people can help. Um, uh, we are going to be, like I said, pushing these policy goals, and, and we'll be putting that out on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's all Society for Ethical Research. If people could join us in calling their congressmen and supporting these uh, abolition bills regarding um, fetal tissue research, both public and private, and the defunding of these programs. For our young listeners out there, we actually are recruiting. We're seeking people 18 to 30 to come to San Francisco to be a part of Society for Ethical Research. Um, there's free room and board. There's a stipend. Um, 
and you'll get a chance to, you know, be a part of our activity. And one of the great things about the Society of Ethical Research is it's one of the most meta groups I've ever encountered. We actually really dwell on activism in general, and we think about it on a deeper level before we go out and act. And so you'll be doing a great work for the pro-life movement, but you'll also be learning about um, activism in general. And it's so important that we attack this great evil of UCSF because it's going to help heal our nation, move our nation more towards a pro-life future. And uh, But, I, yeah, it, for those out there, please uh, join our social media pages. Uh, check out our website, serenow.org. It's S-E-R-N-O-W.org. Uh, donate if that's something they'd like to do. And if they're young and they're interested, please come join us. Those are always the people can help. Well, free room and board with a stipend. You uh, can't beat that with a stick. Yeah, hey, um, in beautiful San Francisco, we're about eight blocks from the beach, so you can't beat that. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely definitely a, an excellent cause to get involved with. Um, well, Nick, those are about uh, all the questions that I have uh, for you this morning. Where can people find you online? The, the, the best place is serenow.org, S-E-R-N-O-W.org. And also, if people are more social media, uh, have a preference for social media, um, we have Twitter, Society for Ethical Research, Instagram, Society for Ethical Research, Facebook, Society for Ethical Research. Um, we're on all of those. So, mm-hmm. yeah, please like our pages. We post videos every day. And if you go to also, if you go to Pro Life SF and go to UCSF American Horror Story, there's all the sourcing of all the stuff we talked about today, all the primary documents. If people really like to, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's, that's the best place to get all the sourcing for that. Yeah. And once again, what's what's the website for SER? S E R N O W dot org. Serenow dot org. Well, Nick, uh, thank you very much for coming on and letting me uh, interview you about this. Okay, no problem, Clinton. And we'd we'd love to come back and update you what's going on. We appreciate all the work you're doing over at Life Training Institute and with your show, and uh, we we're grateful for that. And we'll we'll talk soon. Okay. Yeah, definitely. If you enjoyed my interview today, I would just ask that you share this around social media. You can rate us on iTunes, on our Facebook page, and other places you find us. You can also find us on blogtalkradio.com slash prolifethinking. And of course, give us a review if you'd like. And now this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are a lot more people working to kill unborn babies full-time than there are people working to save them full-time. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax-deductible. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, then also indicate that in the notes as well. And uh, we'll see you next time.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.